Um, would you uh, let's do this together before we kind of jump into the introduction of our new series? I'd appreciate if you would just uh, have a quick word of prayer with me. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the day. We're grateful for uh, sunshine and fresh uh, weather. Uh, Father, we're grateful that uh, you would allow, allow us to be here this morning. Father, we believe that you have a word uh, for us, and we believe that you desire to teach us and to change us. And Father, as we begin to talk about uh, such an important issue of love and relationships and marriage and dating and everything that comes along with that, uh, Father, we believe that you um, have a great design and a great plan for us. And so I pray that you would prepare our hearts for that, that you would make us tender for that, and Father, that we would be receptive to your word. Father, I pray that our worship um, today would be uh, so pleasing to you, Father. Father, I pray that our hearts and minds would engage you in song, that our souls uh, would just uh, relish in worshiping you, and Father, that you would be well pleased and your Son would be honored and that the Spirit would be glorified by what we do, both in song and in word. And so we ask for your help, Spirit, we ask for your presence. Jesus, we ask that we would honor you in all that we do. We ask it in your name. Amen. I want to begin our series this morning, as many of you, probably most of you know, um, we are transitioning out of the book of Judges and into another Old Testament book by the name of Song of Solomon. And so uh, uh, if you've heard of the Song of Solomon, it's uh, right in the middle of your Bible. And so I want to go ahead and do a quick introduction to that before we dive into the text. I want to begin with a, with a quick story. Uh, the story of t- is told uh, of a young girl um, who was off at nursery for the day, and she heard for the first time as she was at nursery the story of Cinderella. And as all most little girls do, uh, they really enjoy the story of Cinderella. And so she was very excited uh, to hear the story. And, and she returned home uh, from nursery uh, that day, and she told her mom uh, the story of Cinderella. And she was so very excited about the story. And her mom said, that's great, honey. Uh, such a wonderful story. So how did the story end? Uh, Did it end happily ever after? And the little girl said, no, mommy, it didn't end happily ever after. They got married. (laughs) You know, a funny story, but as we think about it, as we think about our culture today, I think... Sadly so, uh, both inside the church and outside the church, many people's perception is uh, very much like the little girls. Uh, uh, Marriage often doesn't end with a happily ever after. Um, Marriage is uh, often perceived as uh, once you get married, it's going downhill. You have the ball and chain. You're not going to be as happy. You're not going to have the romance that you used to. It's going to be full of duty and lifeless. It's going to be without romance, without joy. This is, I think, oftentimes the perception, both inside the church and outside the church, that that this is what marriage is like. Um, If I were to paint a picture of how I think uh, most of, uh, much of our culture perceives marriage, it would be uh, this painting, Grant Wood's American Gothic. I think we're all familiar with this. Who has not, everyone's seen this painting, right? It's called American Gothic. And I was doing a little bit of reading on it, and the actual intent of the painting was supposed to be the house in the background. It was supposed to be a picture about a type of architecture in the background. I always thought it was about a farmer and his wife in their marriage. <laughs> um, just And so, uh, stick with me here for a little bit. This is, I think, the, the common perception of marriage much of the time in our culture. You know, when you see a couple, uh, you're going out to dinner, and you see a couple, and they're sitting close to one another, and they're holding hands with one another, and they're speaking kindly to one another, you think one of two things. You think, 
they're not married, <laughs> you know, or what's gotten into them, you know. Uh, it's, it's just not what we think oftentimes. And, and, and I think this would be a common, you know, picture of, of what most people think of marriage. The woman, obviously, is uh, vexed and troubled by something. You can see it in her eyes. And uh, I've always thought that the guy has a pitchfork in his mind uh, just because he's thinking some evil thoughts about his wife. <laughs> he's like, oh, I could use this to do something bad. Uh, we're familiar with this. And so the question that I, I think that the Song of Solomon raises, we can move past that picture, uh, that I think raises is this. Are relationships supposed to be this way? Is marriage supposed to be like that? Is it supposed to digress to something that is lifeless, to something that is joyless, to something that lacks romance, to something to where love wanes, to something to where joy is scarce and it's merely a duty that you do? Is marriage supposed to be this way? And I think what we're going to see throughout the course of seven weeks is that God has something to say about love, about relationships, and about marriage. And I think God's answer to those questions is a resounding no. It's not meant to be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way. Speaking of what God thinks on the issue, I want to begin by just a quick straw poll. You can just you know, do this, wave at me if you, uh, uh, to respond. I want to ask a question of you. How many people sitting here have ever heard a song or maybe a lesson preached or taught from the book of Song of Solomon? Okay, a few of you. That's better than what I anticipated. Not very many. How many of you have ever heard a a sermon or, or a lesson on the issue of biblical attraction? Okay, maybe one or two. What about dating? Ever heard a biblical perspective on dating before? One or two. Okay. What about sex? Ever heard a a sermon on sex before? Okay, no one. (laughs) To be expected. Uh, What about romance? How to be romantic in your relationship? Not one. What about marital conflict? Handling the inevitable conflict that comes in marriage? Anyone? Sermon? Lesson? Okay, one. This makes my point. Oftentimes, we think that God has nothing to say over these issues that are so vital to who we are as people and to who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. But God does have something to say about it. And it's found in a book, a little short book called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. It's found right in the middle of the Old Testament in what is called the Wisdom Literature. Um, these, you're probably familiar with these books, but the Wisdom Literature, right in the middle of, of your Bible, is meant to teach us practical living. It's meant to teach us God's perspective on very practical and tangible things. And so we see the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is meant to teach us about everyday thing, about wisdom in the everyday nitty-gritty of life. We see the Psalms, wisdom literature. It's meant to teach us about worship, how we're supposed to worship God. The book of Job, wisdom literature, is supposed to teach us how to suffer well without losing our faith. The book of Ecclesiastes is meant to teach us about what life is all about, how to find meaning and significance in life. And right smack dab in the middle of the wisdom literature, we get this little book called the Song of Solomon. And it's supposed to teach us 
about relationships. It's supposed to teach us about love. And so what I want us to see this morning is that on, on these topics, all of the topics that we've talked about, God has something to say. It's not like he throws us this hand grenade called love and relationships and romance. It's not like he throws us this hand grenade and says, here, figure it out for yourself. Hope no one gets hurt. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give us this grenade called love. But what he does is he devotes one entire book of the Bible, an entire book of the Bible, towards these issues. And so my hope, my goal, and my prayer as I've been preparing for this and as we'll walk through this for about seven weeks is that those of you who have good relationships, dating relationships, good marriages, my hope is that the Song of Solomon will strengthen those healthy marriages. For those of you who have broken Uh, mending marriages, relationships. My hope is that God will use that to bring healing there. My hope is that for those of you who are young, young people, children, teenagers, my hope is that upon hearing the Song of Solomon, it will help prepare you for your future marriage. And so what I want to do is, is kind of begin with this. What is the Song of Solomon? Before we jump into it, I want to do a quick introduction to the book. What is the Song of Solomon? As I've said before, the Song of Solomon is is essentially wisdom literature, but it's poetry. And so what we're going to be diving into for about seven weeks is poetic, highly poetical nature. So it's, it's a wisdom poetry, but in particular... It's a love song. It's love poetry. And so if you have ever, uh, either in childhood or adulthood, have written a love letter, penned a love letter, whether it be in kindergarten or 12th grade or even as an adult, this essentially is what the Song of Solomon is. It's a love letter. And it's a love letter between a man and a woman that tells their story. And so what I think we're going to see in the Song of Solomon is the story of a man and a woman and how their relationship began and how their relationship grew and how their relationship uh, <clears throat> prospered on. So who wrote who wrote the Song of Solomon? Well, the title should give it away, right? The Song of Solomon, uh, I believe, was written by King Solomon. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you have King David, the great greatest king, I believe, in Israel. And King Solomon was his son. And so it was penned about 970 before Christ. And so several millennia before our time, this great love poem was penned. The question always arises uh, about the authorship of the book. The question is, if you know anything about the Bible and if you know anything about this guy Solomon, you know that towards the end of his life or eventually uh, later, he ended up not being the best model for marriage. In fact, the Bible tells us that he has, I want to get my numbers right, that he has eventually, that he acquired for himself as the king of Israel 300 wives. That's a lot of wives. 300 wives. 700 concubines. And so this is the biblical narrative of Solomon. And so the question is inevitably asked, and so I want to raise it. How in the world can a guy who, who was so outside of God's will in this marriage pin a book on pure, biblical, faithful love and marriage? There are a lot of ways that people answer this. I'll tell you what I believe personally about this. I believe that this was Solomon writing about his very first marriage. We don't know biblically who he was first married to. We have an account of him being married to a foreign wife. My my impression and my 
the, what, I, what I believe about this is that this was Solomon's first wife before he even went into that marriage, before all of the 300 wives, before all of the 700 concubines. I believe that this was preserved for us in Scripture by Solomon as he relates to us the purity of his first marriage. Now, what we're going to see, as I said, is a story between a man and a woman in a love song. And there is, there's an order here. So if we can go to the next slide, there's, a, there's an order, there's a, there's a progression that I think we see biblically. Um, and I think what we see is that if you were to ask how normal relationships, healthy marriages are supposed to look, how is it supposed to be the ideal, what you would have is this kind of progression. And so this is essentially where we're going to be going for the next seven weeks. First of all, what we see from this couple is that they are attracted to one another. And so we see the art of attraction, finding the right kind of mate. How do you find the right kind of spouse. Then we see the art of dating. And what we're going to see is this couple handles themselves in dating relationships as their relationship continues to, to grow. And what we see especially is they handle premarital passion well. They do it extremely well. Art of attraction, the art of dating. Then we see the art of intimacy. And what we're going to get is an in-depth look into their wedding night. It's going to get a bit steamy, and so hold on to your horses. But we see a a chapter and a half devoted to the art of intimacy. Next, we see the art of conflict. And so what we're going to see is this couple move from their wedding night into fighting. (laughs) And, And what we're going to see is this couple have conflict, because every couple does. And we're going to see this couple learn how to deal with conflict within marriage in a biblical way. Your turn. Your turn. No, that's not what we're going to see. We're going to see them fight fair is what we're going to see. Moving on from the art of conflict, next we're going to see the art of deepening. We're going to see uh, that as uh, time passes, they continue to be romantic with one another. The art of deepening. Finally, what we're going to see is what I would call the art of faithfulness. The art of faithfulness, growing in your relationship, continuing to be faithful to your spouse. And so... This is the Song of Solomon. This is where we're going to be. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to transition, we're going to worship, and we're going to sing songs of praise and worship to God. We're going to sing songs about Jesus. But before we do that, before I invite you to stand, this is how I want to transition us. As we've been saying, every scripture, both old and new, points us towards Jesus. He's the key player uh, throughout the entirety of the Bible. And the Song of Solomon historically has often been seen as portraying even to a greater degree the relationship of Jesus Christ who is called the bridegroom, the husband, if you will, uh, of the church. And the church is often portrayed as the bride of Jesus Christ. And so what I think we see, what I think we see is God's teaching us about human relationships. But what it does is it points us towards Jesus. It points us towards the great bridegroom of our souls. It points us towards the one who is always faithful, always loving, always pure, always has our best interest in mind, always sacrificial, the ultimate partner, if you will, the ultimate love of our hearts and our life. That's what Song of Solomon points us towards ultimately is Jesus. And so I think we're going to really enjoy this. I think it's going to be good. And so at this point, let's do this. I'm going to have our musicians come forward. We're going to sing songs of praise and we're going to sing to Jesus, our great bridegroom. And so if you would again bow with me in prayer, let's prepare our hearts to worship. Father, as we anticipate hearing from your word, I pray, Father, again, that you would just make us 
Open to your word. Father, I pray that you would teach us some really practical things about this morning attraction. What it is for us to be biblically attracted to our spouse. What it means for us to be biblically attracted to a future mate. Father, I pray for those in here who are not married. Father, who at some point in their life will be married. I pray, Father, just for your power to come forward and to teach them what it is, what they should be looking for in a mate. And Father, I pray for those of us who are married. God, I pray that we would learn to see our spouse anew, and that we would have new eyes for them, that we would begin to see uh, what attracted us to them in the first place and the things that attract us to them now. And Father, I pray again that you would be with us, that you would heal uh, wounds, and that you would grow us in this area. Father, ultimately, we trust that no human relationship can give us what you have given us in Jesus. He is our ultimate bridegroom, and he is everything that we need, and we can only have good relationships here if our relationship is right, there. And so we ask for your help. Jesus, would you be honored by what we say and do this morning? We ask it in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. At this point, we're going to ask the kids to head on out to Children's Church. And as the kids are heading out, I'd invite you to turn with me to your Bible, uh, the book of Song of Solomon. Again, pretty much smack dab in the middle of your Bible um, is where you will find uh, the Song of Solomon. It should be right after uh, the book of, I want to say, the book of Ecclesiastes. And so uh, turn with me. Song of Solomon is where we're going to be. Uh, We're going to begin uh, this morning uh, with an interview. Um, We are talking about the art of attraction. Uh, What is it that we are to be attracted to, uh, to a potential spouse? Uh, What is it that we are to be attracted to and our current spouse? And so this is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I've asked um, a young couple from our church, um, AJ and Katrina, to come and just share a little bit about their experience and what that looked like in their life. And so after we hear their experience, come on up, guys. After we hear their experience, then we're going to begin uh, the experience of uh, Solomon and his bride, often called the Shulamite. Let's give this couple a round of applause. They're doing a a hard thing here. Come on up, guys. It's a hard thing to come on up and talk in front of a bunch of people. So thanks for doing that with me. Uh, Just a couple of questions uh, for both of you. Again, uh, talking about attraction and what that looks like. And so I've asked you guys, uh, you know, to be willing to do that, and you're so graciously uh, willing to do that. And so I guess the first uh, question, I'll go ahead and start with you, AJ. Uh, hey, man, sorry, dude. You, man of the house now. Here we go. <laughs> Pretty soon. Yeah, turn it on. Turn it on. Um, first question, uh, first for AJ. Should the light, yeah, here we go. First question for you, AJ, and then Katrina, I'll go ahead and ask you to answer the same question. Uh, what specifically about your partner's character do you find attractive, in particular, um, uh, their character, character traits? how they look like Christ. What, what, what about that attracts you to Katrina age? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I guess the first thing is... Is, oh, is it light on? Light's on, light's on. Hello. Yeah, yeah okay. great, nice. Um, the first thing I guess I could really notice is that she truly loves Jesus. So uh, I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> um, but not just that. I think uh, through everything we do, like just together, she's a constant reminder that Jesus comes first in our relationship. And that uh, as hard as this is to say, like, that she's actually number two. 
So, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I know I'm number two to her. So, <laughs> that's great. But uh, I definitely think that just through everything she does, she just you could just tell that she has this love for Jesus and that she wants to live her life how He wants her to live her life. So, absolutely. Thanks. Okay, same question to you, Katrina. Okay. Um, I kind of got a little bit more specific than that, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, we were just talking about it. And um, I think one of the first things that really um, that I notice about him and that he kind of helps me in is he's very non-judgmental because I tend to get very judgmental of people, especially non-believers. And he's really helps me, um, like, have a better approach to to being a good friend to people, even if. You know, if they're not Christians, if they're not believers. And so that was one thing that just really stood out to me. Um, and I'd make little comments about, oh, I can't believe that person's doing that. And he'd just be like, hey, you know, you, you can't just make comments like that. So that was that was a really good thing um, that I noticed about him and that I really um, find attractive about him. And also another thing, um, I just thought of this, <laughs> this this morning, actually. I, I tend to worry a lot. And basically by me worrying is saying that, like, I don't trust God completely because I'm relying on myself, and I don't trust that I can do it myself. And so um, he really helps me. Like, I get stressed out about school and about work and about, oh, no, we're moving. Have you started looking for jobs yet? Have you done this? Have you applied for FAFSA? Have you done this? And, you know, the list always goes on in my brain. And so he's really helped me just, you know, it's okay. Like, basically, by you saying you're worrying, you're, you're not trusting God. And so he's really, really helped me in that. Fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. And the reason why we started that question, it was a it was intentional that we began with what attracted you about each other's character. What we're going to see in the book of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon, is that there is most certainly physical attraction between Solomon and his bride to be. But what undergirds that, what drives that is really the character of the of the individual, that uh, godliness that you guys have described so well. So I guess that kind of segues into our final question here. Uh, What do you think then about the role of physical attraction. Uh, what role does you know, being physically attracted to your spouse-to-be, uh, to your spouse currently, um, what role does that have to play? You've talked about character traits. Is that important? What do you think? I think that physical attraction is important as far as I think it's important that you find, find your spouse or who you're dating to be physically attractive. Um, whether that's, I, I don't want that to be the only reason you go into a relationship, and I don't want to be, hopefully that's not the only reason that you like them, but I think it's important, um, I mean, I mean, for us not even being married yet, I guess, I mean, I'm the immature and one here, and I'm sure you guys know better than me, but um, I think it's, I think it's crucial that you find them, you know, physically attracted at some point, and we were kind of discussing this, and we said it's, it's good that God puts different ideals in our brain, in our heads, because some people have a different ideal of beautiful, but um, if, if AJ would come to me and say, you know, well, you know, you're okay physically, but I love this about you, and I love how you love Jesus, you know, I'd just be like, oh, okay, well, you know, I like that he calls me beautiful, so I think for, I guess that's my, my point. Thanks. Anything to add? Anything to add to that? Um, no, I think it's pretty much the same. Just how yeah. the idea of like, I just find it hard that you could. I mean, I think as people we are physically attracted to other people, so I just find it hard that some people could live together, you know, and not have any physical attraction between them. I just find it difficult to see that in a 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's important. Definitely not the most important, maybe, but, you know, I definitely think it's important. Yeah, well said. Finish it. Yeah, sure. Um, I know a lot of times people, like, we were just talking about this in one of my classes this week about the, a lady made the comment, like, well, I've been married for nine years. I don't care anymore what I look like. And I just thought, like, in my head, this kind of just popped in my head, and I don't know if this is good advice or whatever, but I think it's really important. Like, obviously, you know, we're not very physical now because, you know, we're not married, but like, I think even once we're married, I want to, I want to try to work on the things that he finds attractive about me, especially physically. I mean, physically attracted as well. Like, I know he's made comments, oh, I like your hair better short. And so instead of me just being like, we've been dating for five and a half years. I don't really care if you like my hair short. I'm going to wear it long because I like it long. You know, I'm, I think it's important that you need to say, okay, he likes my hair short, like, and out of my love and out of my respect for him, I'm, I'm going to keep my hair short because he finds that physically attractive. So, Thanks. That's great. No, thank you guys very much. Uh, we're going <clears> to <throat> close um, with a quote from Mark Driscoll. Um, many of you may have heard about him. He says this, and I think it's a wise advice, that your spouse is always is your standard of beauty. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. And so what your spouse is, is completely beautiful and attractive. That's how it's meant to be. And so I want to close with that. And thank you guys very much for doing this again. Please, let's encourage them for sharing so openly with us. Oh, thanks, guys. All right. So we're going to go ahead and dig in. We've seen Katrina and AJ's version of the art of attraction. And so uh, now we're going to talk about a Solomon and his bride-to-be uh, art of attraction. You know, there are a lot of different things that attract us to people, uh, that attract us to a potential spouse, that attract us to a uh, our current spouse. Um, and so the big question is, um, what is it that we are uh, supposed to be attracted to? What is God's intention for attraction? How does how has God designed for a godly young man and a godly young woman to be attracted to one another? Um, by way of introduction to this, um, can't help but share the story. When Shelly and I uh, were uh, on vacation a couple of weeks ago, or several weeks ago now, um, we had a chance to take a boat ride um, out to this uh, kind of island. And so we were on the boat ride, and part of the boat ride um, was uh, the potential to see whales. And so we were out in this big bay in between the islands of Hawaii, and they uh, it was towards the end of whale season, but they actually spotted quite a few whales for us. It's five to ten different whales, and they said it was mating season. And so it was mating season for the whales, and our guide was very knowledgeable about this, or at least he seemed to be. I trusted him. And what he said is, is um, you know, they, we noticed a whale, and we saw the fin kind of come out, out of the water like you would see, and it started doing this. Like if you imagine the fin, right, out of the water, and it would do this to the water. It would slap it. It would go boom, 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 slap in the water. And, you know, I guess someone asked, what is that, you know, what's going on? And so he said, well, this is, this is how female whales attract male whales. This is their attraction mechanism. What they would do is they would garner attention. They would say, hey, I'm on the market, so to speak. And they would stick that tail up there and go bap, bap, bap until the, until, until the males or a male would come. Uh, to mate. And so this guy, uh, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he said, we once saw a female whale doing this and they counted how many times she slapped the water until a male, you know, would come. And the guy said, I don't know, you remember the specific number? It was like 49 or, you know, 49, let's just say 49. He said, we saw this poor female whale slapping the water 49 times 
and there was no mail that came. <laughs> and he said, I, the only thing I could think of was, it must have been one ugly whale. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so segue. Obviously, that's not how God intended attraction to be with humans. What is God's design for attraction? What we're going to see, uh, we have a simple outline this morning. If we can go to the next slide. The very simple outline that we're going to see this morning as we begin the Song of Solomon is in verses 1 through 4, the woman begins uh, the book. And she begins the book and she begins to talk about Solomon's character and 1 through 4. And then she begins in verses 5 through 8 to talk about her character. And what we're going to see is how to be attracted to one another in a biblical way. And what we find out that it has everything to do with physical attraction, but what undergirds the attraction, what drives the attraction is the character. And so we begin in verses 1 through 4 with the character of Solomon. And so let's just uh, begin reading this together. Again, the woman speaks first, and she speaks, first of all, uh, about Solomon's looks. She She speaks first of all about what is physically attracted speaks about his character and this is exactly what she does later on she talks about her physical looks and then her character and so we begin go ahead uh, the song of songs which is solomon's and so a very short introduction the song of songs which is solomon's solomon is the author and what solomon means by the song of songs is that it is the best of songs the holy of holies means the most holy the best of the best means the premier and a thousand songs. He wrote some of the psalms, if you will. But what he says is, out of all all of the songs that I've ever written, this is the best. This is the best one. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. The woman then begins, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And so we begin with the physical attraction. The book begins with a bang, does it not? It's not it's not slow moving, right? At the very beginning, she speaks her desire. Uh, I think at this point they have not met yet. She speaks her desire for Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And so there is a strong physical attraction here that the woman displays for Solomon. She says Essentially, I really want him to kiss me. And if he were to kiss me, it would be better, the image she uses, it would be better than a wonderful glass of wine that I pour on my lips. The taste of, of a wonderful wine on my lips is not as sweet as the kiss would be from Solomon. She says, a kiss from you is as good as the best glass of wine on my lips. And so she is attracted to him. She wants him to kiss her. But not only is she attracted to him in that way, but she's attracted to his smell. Okay, follow along with me. Verse 3. She says, your anointing oils, your perfume, if you will, some translations may say, your anointing oils are fragrant. And so what she's saying then is, I really would like this guy to kiss me, but he smells good. She is physically attracted to him because his fragrance his body fragrance, his anointing oils is very nice. Now, if we were to be honest, we all are put back by someone who smells bad. You know what I mean? It's just not attractive. But especially in this day, a good, a good smelling man was a delicacy. Because it's not like they took baths every day like we did. What they would do to hide their body odor was to put oil on them, like perfumes, constantly. And so what she's saying is, 
hey, you smell good, <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> you, don't, you don't make me want to gag with your smells. And in that culture, hey, very attractive for a man to smell good. And so what we see at the very beginning here, I want to point out, is that there's, there's physical attraction. She wants him to come and kiss her. It's better than the best of wines. He smells good. And so physical attraction is there. It's important. It's certainly a part of what God, how God designed us to be attracted to our, 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 our current mate and, and if we're single, a potential mate. But the question that I want to ask is, is that it? Is that all that we are supposed to be attracted to? Is it purely based on physical looks? Now, I was in youth ministry uh, for years and years and years, and I'll tell you that a large majority of the... I, <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. The many marriages, that's what I would call them. The many marriages, the teenagers dating and acting like they're married. Many marriages. The vast majority of many marriages that I saw growing up was purely, mostly based on physical attraction and not based on character attraction. The person was popular. They looked good. Maybe they wore the right kind of perfume. But what we see is that physical attraction is important but it's not everything. Because what we see is that the woman uses this image of oil to describe his character, to describe his godly character. In verse 3, the last part of verse 3, he begins by, she begins by saying, your anointing oils are fragrant, so you smell good. The oil on your body makes you smell good, and I'm attracted to you. But notice what she says at the tail end of verse 3. Your name. Your name is oil poured out or purified oil your translation might say your name is oil poured out therefore the virgins love you and so what she's saying is i'm physically attracted to you you smell good the oil in your body makes you smell good but your character your name back then and in the old testament a person's name god's name symbolized who they were it was their character it was um whether they were moral and righteous and good. And so what she is saying is, your character, your actions, your relationship with God and others, your character, your name, is like oil poured out. Now what does that mean? Is that, a, you know, oil, your character is like oil poured out? Well, what she's saying is, she's saying your character is pure. Because what they would do is they would purify oils in this way. They would have oil in one vessel, and then what they would do is they would put a filter over another vessel. And if they wanted to purify that oil, if they wanted to get rid of the sediments, if you will, what they would do is they would take the one and they would pour it into the other over the filter. Make sense? Pretty easy to understand, right? And what they would do to purify oil is they would do that over and over and over and over and over. And so the oil was pure, until it was rid of everything bad, everything that they didn't want. And so what is this woman saying about this man who she is attracted to? What is she saying about his character? One, that it's pure, that it's godly. Two, that it is godly increasingly so. Do you see that? He becomes more godly every day. He becomes more Humble every day, more like Jesus every day. His character is growing every day, and it's better and better and better and better. And so she says, this is why the virgins love you. Essentially what she's saying is, I'm not the only one who's attracted to you, not only because you're good looking and you're the king and you smell good, 
But you are godly. You are a godly man. And we see that Solomon was this for a short period of time. He was this. And she says, all the virgins love you. All of the single eligible bachelorettes, if you will, they all want you. In short, in Texas, what we would say is, this guy's a stud. That's what we would say. He, all the women would like him. Now, I want, us, I want you to think back. For some of you, it's further. For some of you, it's not. I think back to, say, junior high days when you were beginning to be attracted to the other uh, opposite sex. And then high school when you began to date. Uh, at least in my high school, and I found this to be true most of the time, there are those guys, you know what I mean? There are those guys who all the girls wanted. Shake your heads with me if you know what I'm talking about. If you know it, you know, like me in high school. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't that. Um, in my dreams, I was that. But there are those guys that all of the girls want. He's a honk. He's you know, full of bravado and character and all of those things. Uh, What got me, and this is personal confession time, what got me growing up was that all of the women wanted those guys, all the girls wanted those guys, but most of the time, those guys were jerks. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you guys who are with me, you know what I'm talking about. They were jerks. The girls didn't hear what they said about them in the locker room. I did, and I would think, you stupid girl. <laughs> what are you doing wanting this jerk? What are you doing? All the girls wanted him. This is Solomon. All the girls want him, but, it's, but he's not a jerk. It's for the, good, for the right reasons. He's a godly guy. His character is growing in godliness, and all of the women want him. And so by means of application, I want to talk to the young girls, single women, uh, and even married women, in particular those who are young, not yet married, What should attract you, ladies, to a guy? What should attract you? Maybe you're married. What should attract you to your husband? What we see is that physical attraction is important, but his character. It's his character. And so I want to ask you, single, if the the guy that you are dating, the guy that maybe you want to date, or if you're a guy, this goes the opposite. If the girl that you are dating, the girl that you want to date, is his or her character increasingly pure? Are they growing in love with Jesus? Does he love God? Does she love Jesus? Do they love the Bible? Are they in church? Do they care about the spiritual things? Or are you always the one bringing it up? Does he read his Bible? Does he pray? Does she do more than sit in a pew on Sunday morning and just take up space? Are they involved in ministry? What is his or her reputation like? In particular, amongst his friends, his peers, her parents, her youth pastor, the community. Because this is the foundation of a healthy marriage. And so, we move on here. We see that she is physically attracted to him. We see that she is spiritually attracted to Solomon. And so, what's the response? What's the response of this girl? Physically attracted, spiritually attracted. What does she say in verse 4? Read Read with me. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. The NIV says, I think this is more uh, a better translation, let the king bring me into his chambers. And so what's the response of a godly young woman to a godly young man who she is both, both physically and spiritually attracted to? Draw me after you. Let us run together. What she wants Solomon to do is to take her by the hand and lead her. Walk 
with her. And not only that, but notice where they're going. The king, NIV, I'm following the NIV here, let the king, I think it's a request, let the king bring me into his chambers. This means what you think it means. The, the king's household, his bedroom. The long and short of it is that she is sexually attracted to this guy. She's physically attracted to him. And it's good. It's right. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we see is that this couple, after they meet, they date, they have incredible restraint. One of the things that marks the early chapters of this book is the incredible restraint that this couple has with their passions. They are passionate about one another. They uh, are beginning to grow in love with one another. They are physically attracted to one another, and they express it because it's not a bad feeling, but it's within restraint. And what we see is until the wedding night, there is incredible restraint. And so we've seen uh, her response to that. Next, at the, at the very end of verse 4, we're introduced to another character, a third character, if you will. They're called the, da- the daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, some translations call them her friends. It's, it's a literary device. What it is, it's a, it's a third group of people. I personally believe that it's just the women in the city of Jerusalem, and they speak, and they speak into the love story, and they kind of further the story. And this is what they say at the end of verse 4. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And what they're doing is I think they're speaking into the desires and the words of this woman. And they're saying, it's good for you to want him. It's good. It's right. You're, you're within the bounds, if you will. And so they affirm her love and attraction to him. And so in verses 1 through 4, we've seen the, one, the, the guy's character, right? He is attractive, but he is godly. And he is growing in his relationship with God. And his character is being refined. And next, she speaks about her physical looks. And then she speaks about her character in verses 5 through 8. So she speaks about, she speaks about her, her looks first, and then she speaks about her character. And so let's read this together, starting in verse 5. She says this, I am very dark. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tent of Kedar, like the, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. And so she begins speaking about her physical looks. And it's very significant that when she speaks about her physical looks, she downplays them. She's not calling herself ugly. She is not beating herself up. But she downplays her physical looks. She says, I am dark, but lovely. And what we see throughout the book is that apparently she is a very attractive woman. She is not at all uh, unlovely. But she, she downplays that. And we see why. She says she's dark. She's dark. What does that mean? She says she's dark like the, the tints of Kadar and the curtains of Solomon. Don't gaze at me because I'm dark. What she means is that she's tan. She is sunburned, if you will. She has a, a dark shade of skin. And so this is completely opposite of our culture, is it not? Because for all our, our culture, people who are generally really dark and, and brazen, uh, they're considered to be attractive. And then white pale skin oftentimes is not seen as much. That's why people go and, and sit in the sun and tanning beds and do oils and all of that stuff. But it's completely the opposite in this culture, because in that culture, all of the women of nobility would not work and they would stay inside. And they would veil themselves. They did not, their face, their light complexion was a mark of beauty. And so they did everything they could to stay out of the sun. Uh, 
But, but then the women who had to work, who were maybe poorer, they had to labor outside. And what happens when you labor outside? You get dark. And so what she's saying is, is I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm beautiful. But the sun has damaged me. She likens it to the tents of Kedar. These were a nomadic people. And they would set up these tents, like Bedouins. And they were black wool tents. And she says, like the curtains of Solomon, which were apparently dark, maybe black. So why, why is this? She says, I'm lovely, but I'm dark. What happened? Well, let's continue on reading in verse 6. And we find out why she is that way. And when we find out why she is that way, we find out a little bit of her character. She's talked about her physical looks. She's very pretty, but not exactly perfect according to the culture. But then we see her character. She says this. My mother's sons, her brothers, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Ladies, do you know what she's saying here? Do you know what she's saying? My brothers were angry at me. They made me go outside and work. I took care of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I could not take care of because I was working outside. She's saying, I can't pay attention to my skin and my looks like the other ladies do. But what we, what we see is a bit of her character. There is no mention of her father in this book. And so we believe that most likely her father was dead. And so the authority in her life then became her brother's. And she describes them as being angry with her and making her work. What do we see about this, the, char- this, the character of this young woman? I think we see a couple things. First of all, we see that she is a hard worker. She is out tending the vineyards. She is using her hands. She is being industrious. She is a hard worker. And that is considered to be godly. A godly woman. Throughout the Bible, women who are considered examples were hard workers. They took care of the sheep. They drew up water. They labored with their hands. And this was a godly character. She was a servant if you will. Secondly, we see that she was submissive to the authority in her life. Do you see that? She didn't like it. Surely she didn't like it. But she was submissive to the authority in her life. And so, gentlemen, I want to speak to the guys, in particular those of you guys who are single, also to those who are married. What should attract you to your future spouse, to your spouse currently? Um, What we see here is that it's the woman's character. And so, guys, if you are looking uh, for a mate... What you need to ask is, is she a servant? Is she serving? Is she others-oriented or is she selfish? Does she care about herself, her clothes, her life? Or is she actually concerned about yours and others' life? Does she show concern about others? Um, on a personal note, one of, the things that I, the very, one of the very first things that I remember about Shelley, and I don't know if you remember doing this at all, I met Shelley at a party that we were having at my house. And tell me if, you, if I'm getting it wrong. Towards the end of the party, uh, people were, I guess, starting to come and go. And what I remember about you is that you were in my kitchen. You remember that? You don't? Okay, it's true. I'm not making it up. You were in my kitchen as people were kind of going. The party was winding down. And guess what she was doing? She was doing dishes. Yeah, she was doing dishes. And I remember saying, you don't have to do that. This is my party. You know, don't worry about it. Of course, you did the dishes, did you not? You remember that? Yeah, you did. Believe me. It's stuck, it's stuck right here because it's the very first impression that I have of you. And so this is an example. I got to keep her. You know, my wife was a servant. So gentlemen, this is what you need to look for. Also, she's submissive to the authority in her life. 
guys, if you're on the prowl, if you will, one of the things you need to look at is how she treats her father. How does she treat her father? How does she talk about her father? How does she talk to her father? Because that's likely going to be how she's going to talk and treat you. And listen to this, gentlemen. If you anticipate that the woman that you're going to marry, that you want to marry, is going to follow you and be submissive to your leadership, like the Bible says, how do you expect her to do that if she is not submissive to the authority in her life currently? She's not going to do that. So you need to look for the character. Is she a servant? Is she submissive to the authority in her life? What we see as we continue on in verse 7, she is hesitant about her looks. She downplays them. She is beautiful, but not perfect in her mind. She is a godly woman. And so she is hesitant about that, but she is not at all hesitant about seeking an opportunity to meet him. She wants to meet him. And we see this in verse 7. So read this with me together. Verse 7. Tell me, she says, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? This is highly poetical language. She is speaking about Solomon as if he was a shepherd. I don't think he literally was. I think it's poetic. Tell me. You whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? Notice the timing, though. Where do you make it lie down at noon in the brightness of the sun? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Again, this is poetical language, but essentially what she's saying is, I want to get an opportunity to meet him. That's what she's saying. I want to get an opportunity to meet him. But notice her caveat. And women, this is very important. Notice the caveat. I want to meet him. Tell me where you pasture your flock. Where are you? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet you at noon in the daylight. She says, why should I be like one who veils her face? Who is that? Any idea? The one in the Bible who veils her face and goes to the flocks, it says at twilight, is the prostitute. And so what she's saying is, I want to meet you. But I'm not going to give up my standards for you. I want to meet you, but I will not be like a prostitute. I will not give up my relationship with God and go to you at twilight. I will not, I will not give up my morality for him. She wants to meet him. She wants to put herself in that place. But she will not give up her relationship with God. Women, young women in particular, you need to determine this, that you will not give up your relationship with God for any guy. Any guy, ever. And I want to speak, speak very frank here. If a guy who says, you have to be physically intimate with me, show me that you love me, you need to break up with him, you need to run, and you need to go as far away from him as you can because he does not love you, he does not respect you, he's lying and he's being selfish. You need to listen and heed these words. It is never worth giving up your relationship with God for a guy who doesn't have a healthy relationship with God. And that's what she's saying. And so we conclude our section in verse 8. We're going to wrap up here. Again, the daughters of Jerusalem chime in. Uh, depending upon the translation that you have, some people believe that this is the guy speaking Solomon. I don't think so. Um, those aren't in the original text. We don't know. We're, we're left to kind of guess who's speaking here. The NIV has this as the daughters of Jerusalem, and I think they're right. And so I think the daughters of Jerusalem, they answer her question. Remember, what was her question? Where can I meet him? How can I meet him? What should I do? And this is what they say. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. 
That is Solomon's flock. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats besides, excuse me, the, beside the shepherd's tents. Again, this is highly poetical language, but what it, I think what they're saying is find a place where he is, know where he's at, know where he's going to be, and put yourself there. That's what, that's what they're saying. Find where his, the tracks of his flock, figure out what his routine is, where his schedule is, and then you go do what you normally do, pasture your young goats besides his tent. Put yourself in his way, is what I believe they're saying. And so the question then becomes, is it wrong for a woman, a young woman, who is attracted to a godly young man um, and uh, desires to meet him, to put herself in his path? Is that wrong? I hope not, because uh, that's kind of what we did. <laughs> uh, and so I, I don't think so. I think that's what they're saying, is you, you present yourself to him. You're not initiating, but you're allowing him the opportunity to notice you, to get to know you. Um, and so Shelly and I did this. Um, I was going to ask Shelly to come up and talk, but I, I'll fill in the, the gaps, I guess, here. Um, but Shelly was a wise, young woman like this. Because obviously she wanted me. I mean, golly. Um, of course she was. But she did this. When we were in seminary, um, we had, you know, we had met and talked a couple times, but she um, just happened to have a class after me in the same room. And so I think I had, I was at 7.45 to 9, I had Greek. And I don't know what you had after that. But she knew, she came to find out somehow that I had that class and it was in the same room. And so instead of waiting until the beginning of class to show up, well, guess who was sitting outside the door as I left Greek? My wife was sitting outside the door, just hoping I would notice, hoping I would talk, and I was a little bit shy, and so it took a few weeks, but, <laughs> uh, but eventually I think I got up the gusto to talk to you and notice that you were there, and then it became a bit of a game. She kind of figured out, and I figured out also, where I like to study in the, in the library, certain tables that I would study at, and so lo and behold, she kind of figured out, you know, my study hours, and I would go to study, and Lo and behold, she kind of be in that area, you know, and so we didn't get much studying done <laughs> at that point. I think, I think we talked a lot more than we studied, didn't we? But hey, <clears throat> it worked out in the end. The point here is that that's not wrong at all. It's a wise thing for you guys to do. So we're going to wrap up. This is your homework. Guys, obviously this has been a little bit more aimed towards those who are single, but this is very, very relevant to those of us who are married because, yes, we are initially att- attracted to our mates, but should that attraction end after we get married? No way. <laughs> no, it's supposed to be continued, and our character is supposed to be defined. And so the kids are coming in, and we're going to let out. But what I want you to do is, Gary, Gary, show them the pages that are right beside you. There is your homework assignment. I want you guys to work on this. If you're single or married, I want you to take this home, and I want you to work on it. And essentially what it is, is for the singles, what I want you to do is think about having a profile for who you want. A lot of us are like, God, who should I marry? Show me. Here's my Bible. Lead me. You know what I mean? That's what, we, that's what we do. But I don't think it works like that most of the time. What you need to have is a character profile. So write out what the kind of person that you're looking for physically, spiritually, and then write out the, the kind of person that you should be looking for according to this section. Singles, that's your homework. I'm going to check it. Okay? Marrieds, it's your homework too. What I want you to do is take this home and write out what initially attracted you to your mate. What were some of the qualities physically and otherwise that attracted you to your mate? And then what I want you to do, and this is the hard part, is you be honest and you say, here are the things that I'm still attracted to. And you talk about it. And you, and you talk about it. And here's, 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 here's the game plan. No 
fighting, no punching, no, yeah, but you listen to them. You listen to them, they listen to you, and you talk about what still attracts you. And my hope is that we can begin to have our eyes opened to the great gift that God has given us in our spouses, why we were attracted to them, why we're still attracted to them. And what I hope we find out is that there are still embers of attraction for our marriage. We're going to pray. Pray with me, and then we're going to be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so very practical for us, and thank you that you've preserved um, this story of attraction for us. I pray that you would help us, uh, those who are single, <clears throat> Father, that you would provide them in, you know, soon or later, uh, just with a godly spouse, that they would be looking for the right kind of person, and Father, that you would lead them and guide them to that kind of person. Father, I pray for those of us who are married, that we would see afresh and anew our spouses and how attractive they are and how great they are, and though imperfect, like all of us are, I pray that we would see them as your special gift to us, and that you would begin to just, again, kind of renew the embers in our life of, uh, of attraction uh, in our marriages. And so we pray uh, for that. We trust that you'll do that. And we ask it in Christ's name. All right, we're going to, amen. We're going to close the service with this, a quote. Charles Shedd says this about marriage. Marriage is not so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. And so go, God bless you this week. And as you go, work on being the right person. See you.